Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. I'll tell you, I'm not very good at keeping up with news, so I am really grateful to my wife because she is. Um, and one thing that she's mentioned to me is that recently there's been a lot of shootings. Uh, I, 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 like Yuji, I don't know if you know, Yuji's kid's school, there was a kid who brought a gun. And unfortunately, one of the kids got shot in the leg. It seems to be fine right now. There was that racially motivated rampage that happened in Buffalo. There's a recent shooting here at Millennium Park. It resulted in, you know, Lightfoot uh, putting a curfew for kids, which is, you know, whatever. Our brother Maurice, the one who passed away, his body has not been released from the morgue yet, which has been making it really hard to finalize funeral plans. But it hasn't been released from the morgue because there's a backup caused by all the gun-related homicides that's happened in Chicago. And hearing all this is disheartening. It's, for some, debilitating. And how are we supposed to live through this craziness that's life in Chicago? And as I was preparing this, I realized, Pastor Clint, if you happen to be listening in, I know you're coming next week. Really, it's not that bad. <laughs> Just a fact. Um, but last week, I mentioned, you know, that repetition results in re- retention. And so, you know, I like to tell you what I'm going to tell you and then tell you and then tell you what I told you, right? And so in light of that, let me tell you what I've been tell- talking about over the past few months. We are in a sermon series that we've called Letters from a Friend. And we've been looking at all these shorter letters that Paul wrote to his friends, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, as well as the letters he wrote to Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and then the two letters to Thessalonica. Now, today we're going to look at the second letter. We looked at the first letter last week. But when we started this series off, we started off with Paul and looked at his life and understood that his life reminds us that no one is beyond God's reach. And then we looked at Galatians, and it's about our unity in our Christian liberty. We looked at Ephesians, and it's about our unity in our diversity. Philippians is about our unity in our humility. And Colossians is about being united as a family that lives as Christ loves. Last week, we looked at this first letter to Thessalonians, and I I didn't have a single theme there. I was kind of all over the place. There's just so much in there. I couldn't stick with one. But I did talk to a few folks, and one of the main points that some of the folks here at Church of the Beloved took away last week was this, that that we as the beloved of God, we must seek the Holy Spirit-empowered transformation that is evidenced by our sanctification through our afflictions that leads to imitation. Today, we're going to look at the second letter to the Thessalonians, and we will focus on one theme, and the theme that I'd really like to focus on today is Paul's instruction uh, on how we're supposed to wait, right? In other words, Paul, I think, has some pretty relevant teachings on how we should live now, even in the craziness that it is life in Chicago. But I want to start off by setting the stage, by turning to Acts chapter 17, um, as Jonah mentioned, the monitors are not working. Normally, we'd have the scripture passages here. So uh, I'll, we'll be jumping around throughout the, the book of Second Thessalonians. Uh, we'll be referencing to other places. If you can keep up, great. Um, later on, if you want to, it'll be available online, at least the, the video of it. But we're going to turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, and Acts 17, it tells the story of how Paul and his, and his crew helped to establish the church in that's not like that. 
You know, it was a very quick trip. It was just three weekends, three Sabbaths. And after teaching for three Sabbaths, if you look at 17 verse 4, this is what it says. It says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. So the church in Thessalonica was formed and was unified in its diversity right from the beginning, ethnic Jews and Greeks, men and women. And this church would also be formed and unified right from the beginning in affliction. Infliction that actually impacted Paul right from the beginning as well. This, the pressure there was getting so bad that the, uh, from the Jewish leaders that, that Paul actually had to run away. Paul had to run out of town. He was run out of town by those leaders. who They were becoming really jealous of his influence on the Jewish community. These, these Jewish leaders hated Paul so much because he was leading others to gospel transformation. They hated Paul so much that they even followed Paul when he went to a different city. Paul ended up in a town called Berea. And these rabble-rousers, they roused rabble by sending their gang of thugs to Berea to drive him out of that town. So the Thessalonian church, it was planted very quickly, and it was planted under some pretty crazy circumstances. Now, you've probably seen stories. When you have a crazy origin story, the people that are part of that origin story, they're usually pretty bonded together, right, because they've been through it all. I wasn't here when Church of the Beloved was first established, but I've heard stories about some of the crazy things that happened. And I, I know that the folks that were there right in the beginning you know, there are folks like Grace and Christine who, by the way, we're going to be spending some time praying for them next week. They're going to be transitioning to new churches. But I know that they are bonded together as a result of those amazing start. So I have a feeling that the Thessalonians, they were pretty near and dear to Paul's heart because they had a crazy start. I, I, I can imagine he probably told stories like, remember the time that the man broke down Jason's door? They grabbed him and put him in jail just because he was, I was in his house. That was crazy, dude. So we have this church that Paul helped to establish in the midst of some craziness. And then he's worried about it, but he gets word back that in spite of all that, they're doing really well. So well that other cities, other churches, other Christians are looking at the Thessalonians and saying, I want to be like them because they know Jesus. They love Jesus. They're living gospel-transformed lives that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. But there was a problem. And it's not one you would actually expect. If we turn to, um, look at this letter, chapter 3, verse 6 of this uh, letter, 2 Thessalonians, you see why Paul wrote this second letter. In 3.6, it says this, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Idleness. You know, to be honest with you, as I was thinking about this, personally, I don't think this is necessarily a problem or an issue for our church of the beloved, right? There are many here that are probably thinking, well, that, you know, that doesn't apply to me at all. I, I, I'm the opposite of idle. You know, I, I'm, I'm not lazy. I'm not lackadaisical. I barely have enough time to think. Uh, uh, my calendar is so full, I, I have no time to be idle. That's not a thing. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm kind of with you. I, I think from the, at least from the world's definition of the word idle, this is not something that is a problem for the people of, of the beloved, of beloved. When your calendar has more filled in spaces than empty spaces, or, or when the only empty spaces on your calendar is like when you're going to sleep, it's hard to consider yourself idle. There's an old adage. Um, 
It says, Satan wants me to make an idol of work or make me idol instead of work. Because either way, he wins. I'll tell you the truth. that For the Church of the Beloved, my sisters and brothers here, I think maybe the former is more realistic than the latter. But before we write off this issue that the Thessalonians were dealing with as irrelevant to us, I want to spend a moment to consider and look at the cause of their idleness and the result of it, because I think that it might have some relevance to how we are called to live, how we are called to wait in today's world. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says this. Um, 2, 1, 2 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. You read this, in other words, somehow the people of Thessalonica, they thought that Jesus was back, that Jesus had returned, but not in a like a left behind kind of way. I don't know if you've ever had those situations, those dreams or a moment when suddenly it seemed like Jesus had taken everybody but you, everyone else is gone, and you're like, what did I do to get left behind? And you're like trying to think of who's the most holy person that I know that I can call right now just to be sure that they're still here. If they're still here, then Jesus is not back yet kind of thing. That's what I mean by left behind. Somehow, for some reason, some of the Thessalonians were under the impression that Jesus had come back and that the last days, they were living in it right now. And if we were to think about that within our own context right now, today, it does sound a little weird, maybe a little crazy. I mean, with all the horrible things that were still going on in their time, with all the horrible things that are going on in our time, to think that Jesus was back and that this was what heaven is supposed to be? This is why understanding the mindset of the intended, the original reader is so important because if we consider their mindset, the Thessalonian mindset at the time, I think we can actually start to understand that thinking the day of the Lord had come, it actually wasn't so far-fetched. It, it was wrong, but it was understandable. Because if the transformation by the power of the gospel results... It results in a relationship with the author of the gospel. If God adopts his chosen, then the heavenly father had become their dad, right? And they were now in a personal relationship with the almighty. The Thessalonians now knew God. And this was so much better than anything that they had ever thought or considered could happen. They, so they thought, oh, well, this must be it. This was a life that had been promised to them. You can see a little bit of that life as well. In John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23, it says this. Jesus is praying uh, for us. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you, may you know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. 
Those Christians had gone from a fear of wrath to the joy of redemption. They, they were in the joy of relationship. They were so ecstatic. They were so happy at what they had gained by proclaiming with their mouths and with their hearts that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God that now they, could, they would no longer have fear of death, right? And th- this was awesome for them. But what they didn't realize was that this wasn't all there was. This amazing personal relationship with God, it was not all there was to, to gain. That, that's what they'd forgotten. They had somehow been misled and ignored the fact that there is so much more. Slight tangent here. Paul tells the Thessalonians to not be fooled by a letter supposedly from us. And, and, and somebody was saying that they were Paul in writing. And his proof of, of authenticity was to make sure he used his own handwriting uh, somewhere in his letter. You'll see it sometimes in other letters as well, Paul writes. In chapter 3, verse 17, he writes this, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is, this is how I write. And I'll tell you, I so want to see how he writes. You know, like, was it really big? Uh, that's what some people think. Was it really, like, messy, like a doctor's? Like, nobody would ever copy that? Or, or maybe it was, like, perfect, like, straight. You know, some of our beloved folks here... A little old school. They still like to send notes and cards. So, you know, I, I get to see a chance. I have a chance to see some amazing handwriting sometimes, like Lydia, Oppo, Shika, Evelyn. If you ever want to see perfect writing, just ask them to write something for you. But whether it was good or bad, I kind of want to see how Paul wrote. Because it was so distinct to be obviously from him. Now, let me get back to this. I, I don't believe any of us sitting here right now or listening online believe that the day of the Lord has come right now. I don't think... We are of the mindset that this is heaven and that the judgment day is upon us. I, I, I don't think we're there. But I do believe that many of us live lives that think that this is it. That the idea that there must be more, it doesn't really resonate with us. At least not enough to make a difference in our lives. See, Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand that heaven wasn't here yet, right? That the day of the Lord had not yet arrived. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul wrote this. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And that hadn't happened yet. It still hasn't happened yet. And as you read through this letter that Paul writes, he gives some pretty clear examples of, of how we will recognize that day, when that day comes. In the second half of verse 8, it says the Lord will destroy him. He's speaking of the lawless one. The Lord will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. So who is the lawless one, right? He's the Antichrist. In verses 9 and 10, it goes a little deeper into it. He says, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. The lawless one is the emissary of Satan that's going to do everything in their power to pull us away from God. Chapter 2, verse 4 describes this Antichrist even more. He says, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. 
Revelation chapter 13, it describes this Antichrist as one who works to wear down the saints to lead the people of the world to worship him instead of God. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into the discussion of who the Antichrist is, whether that person is here now in our midst. You know, back in the 80s, uh, when I grew up, there was a number of people who used to believe that Gorbachev, if you don't know who Gorbachev is, he was the last uh, leader of the USSR before Putin before it became Russia and stuff like that. Um, he had this birthmark on his head that everyone thought was a sign of the devil. Anyway, they thought that maybe Gorbachev was an antichrist. There was a whole other bunch of people that people thought were the antichrist. Maybe you think you know the antichrist like it's your roommate or something. But John wrote in um, 1 John chapter uh, 2, verse 18, as you have heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come. So maybe any and every opponent of faith in Christ is the antichrist. I don't know. But regardless, one of the key signs of Christ's return is that Jesus defeats the lawless one. He defeats the Antichrist. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. So in other words, the day of the Lord is going to be super obvious. Because the lawless one, when we recognize him, the Antichrist will be utterly defeated. And the result will be judgment. In chapter five, uh, 1, verse 5 to 10, it says this. It is clear, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you are also suffering, since it is just for God to replay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. Because our testimony among you was believed. I know ultimately it sounds kind of harsh because, you know, we, like God, we don't want to see those around us who don't seem so bad to feel the wrath of God in their lives. But I want to paint this judgment day with an example here. So the last few years have resulted in an, in an awakening to an unfortunate truth. Complacency, it leads to apathy, which leads to cruelty. The BLM movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, it was born out of a complacency of a majority culture that uh, did not change things like institutional racism because it didn't impact them. And this led to an apathy to the injustices that were being born on our black and brown sisters and brothers, right? And, and this often led to a cruelty towards our fellow image bearers of God. That is absolutely unacceptable. And the response by many has been a cry for justice, for vengeance, for vindication, for retribution, for redemption. Now, I'm not trying to say that the BLM movement is the coming of the day of the Lord at all, but I think it does kind of paint a picture, at least for me, of how God's righteous judgment towards those who are counted worthy and those who are counted unworthy, in God's eyes, how that makes sense. Because that righteous judgment for the repentant, it means redemption and glory. The beloved of God are going to be glorified and glorify the Lord God who reigns forever. 
The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. But it is coming. And when it does, it's going to be super obvious. There will be no question about it. But until that day comes, what are we supposed to be doing? And this brings us back to the original theme I really wanted to focus on today. That was all context. How are we supposed to wait, right? How are we supposed to live right now in the midst of mass shootings, racially motivated murder, the violence that makes us, some of us too afraid to even leave our house? And I'll tell you, the first thing I think that we are wanting to do and we're called to do is to be ready to wait. Matthew chapter uh, 25, verse 1 to 13. It says this. Jesus is sharing a parable about waiting. And this is what he wrote. He said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now, five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flask with their lamps. And when the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out, meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones I said to the wise ones, um, give us some of your oil, because our, our lamps are going out. And the wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived. And those who were ready went in, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. And he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert. Because you don't know either the day or the hour. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night. Not, not like a sneaky person, but an unexpected person. So we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to wait, too. Like the five out of ten versions, we need to be prepared to, for a long wait. It's like a doomsday prepper who stores up supplies for the inevitable zombie apocalypse. We need, not, we need to be ready for that. We need to say, not to say we should become doomsday preppers or anything like that. If you are one, I would like to know because it's just a good thing to know in general who's ready. <laughs> so the first thing we need to do is be ready to wait. The second thing we need to do is continue to work. The passage that was read today, and, and thank you, Hannah, very much for reading that. I'm sure it was, there are parts that were, that were probably a little uncomfortable. You know, like, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. That's, you know, a little harsh, a little uncomfortable to read. So I want to make a couple points pretty clear here with regards to this passage. I, I know that there are some who will take that particular verse or this concept as a whole, and, and they'll associate with this idea, associate it with an idea that social welfare system, social support, those need to be done away with. That's wrong. That's not what this is saying. Because what that interpretation does, it does not consider the totality of Scripture. I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again, and, and so bear with me. Our faith emphasizes the importance and the value of caring for the vulnerable. James said it when, uh, that we need to look after the widows and orphans. That's true religion. Our partners in Zambia, Hands at Work, our partners in the Philippines, Made in Hope, 
They specifically work with the most vulnerable, with the orphans that were left behind by the AIDS pandemic, with the women and girls who are being trafficked into slavery. That's who they work with. Our faith, our God demands that we care for, that we love the vulnerable, those who are unable to work. So this is not for them. This call to work is for the able-bodied and the busybodies. This one is for me, really. There's a, there's a theologian, his name is Don Carson. He's one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition. He, he once pointed out that the term busybody, it doesn't only mean someone who gets all up in your business when they shouldn't be. Right? It's actually referring to clients of a patron. Right? Some of you are probably familiar with a, a, a cloud platform called Patreon. It, it, it connects artists and like, uh, creatives with folks who are willing to give them money uh, for their work. It's a way for starving artists not to starve. Back in Paul's day, it was basically the same thing. There was this patronage system set up where poor folks could go to a rich person and ask them to be their benefactor. And the busybody, it was a word used for a benefactor's toady or a sycophant or a bootlicker. Basically, instead of working with their hands, they would demean themselves and their ethics to just become yes-men to their benefactor. So Paul was calling out the able-bodied and the busybodies, the sycophants, for not working. He wasn't talking about those who are unable to work. He was calling out those who are unwilling to work. He was throwing shade on the idol. Paul was pointing out that our faith, it absolutely is countercultural. So the patronage system that existed then no longer made sense, and we needed to stop that because God created us to work. Not to make an idol of work, but also not to be idle instead of work. See, the Thessalonians, some of them thought that this, this, this uh, you know, was all there was to their faith, right? And, and because they were content with what they had, they just stopped working. Paul's example of work, though, it wasn't limited to just supporting yourself or your family. It included that. You know, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 says this, for you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you, we did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and we toiled, working night and day so that, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Because at that time, in that place, it was better for Paul to not rely on the support of the locals in Thessalonica because he didn't want folks to be able to accuse him uh, of preaching a gospel that would line his pockets rather than transform their hearts. He wanted to be able to, with all confidence, preach a gospel that no one would try to twist and say, ah, oh, He's just trying to make a buck. He got support from others, but not from them. But Paul's example of work is not limited to just that, right? It's not just about earning a living. It also includes doing good. Verse 13 of what was read today, but as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. It included considering the family of Christ for the sake of Christ. See, our lives, while we wait for the return of our Savior, while we anticipate the day of the Lord, our lives of working must include considering our sisters and our brothers as more significant. Our work must include building up our, our family, our friends who are family. Verses 14 and 15 says this, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him. So he may be ashamed. Yet, don't, don't consider him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. 
So the first thing we're called to do is to be ready to wait. The second thing we're called to do is to work. And the last thing that we're called to do now is pray. There are at least four prayers or calls to prayer that Paul has in this short letter. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. It says this, In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another prayer in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Quick one, it says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. There's a call to prayer in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. Last one I want to point out is in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Prayer is so essential to our waiting and to our working. Because with prayer, we can cling to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives with the truth of the gospel, that, that, that truth that the gospel teaches us. And with prayer, we can be encouraged and we can encourage our family in Christ. Something that we're actually going to get a chance to do today at the end of service. We're going to be inducting four new members to our local embassy here. With prayer, we can be made worthy of the title, Beloved, by our work that's produced by faith, by our labor that's motivated by our love, and, and our endurance that's inspired by our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, we have a team now of about 10 people that have signed up to be a part of an intercessory prayer team. They've committed to pray for this church until the end of the year. Pray for this church to pray for you. To pray that we might remember God's love for us. A love that led his son to come down for our sake. To bear the burden of our sin. To die on the cross so that, I, so that we wouldn't have to. There's still time to join this team if you want to. Just email prayer at cotb.life. Say that you want to be a part of this group that wants to live to pray. Because prayer is so essential to who we are as a beloved God. I'll tell you, life in Chicago, amongst the shootings, amongst the difficulties and everything else that's going on, it's not easy. Um, and it's not all we get. There is so much more that's promised. The day of the Lord is still coming and we are called to wait. Even though it's hard, we are called to wait. And while we wait, the able-bodied and the busybodies, we are called to work, to do good. And while we wait, we are called to pray. And if we believe that there is more, that, that the life we are experiencing right now is not all that there is, then I want to leave you with a question. If you knew with 100% certainty that Jesus was not going to come back, would your life be different? Because as we wait, we are called to work for the glory of God. As we wait, we are called to pray to experience the glory of God. So, would your life be different? Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. 
God bless and have a great week.